Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved. You're inspired and you're inerrant. You're infallible and you're all-sufficient. Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Caroline for leading us in worship. What a joy as well to celebrate new life in Christ with Lily Rogers in baptism. Lily, we pray for you that you run hard after Christ, setting your eyes forward. Run the race of faith with endurance that he will give you. Having believed, you have built up and encouraged the body through your obedience in baptism. So we rejoice with you today, and we look forward to rejoicing with you again and again as God grows you and conforms you into the image of his beloved Son. Well, beloved, picking up our Bibles today to mind the beauties that are contained within, let us be reminded of what it is that we possess in the Word of God. What is it that we hold and we love and we cherish? Of course, we labor week after week explaining and describing what the Bible says about the truths within, word by word, what it says about God and man, about creation and salvation of history and eternity. But we rarely ask, how does the Bible describe itself? Do you know what the Bible says about itself? Did you know that the Bible testifies about itself? To pull a phrase from the artificial intelligence craze that the Bible is self-aware. Scripture describes itself, its attributes, its purposes, and design. Scripture shows us what it is, and it shows us who God is by what it does and what it accomplishes when it's applied. And Scripture describes itself in familiar terms and relates itself to objects that we can easily understand. Of course, the most well-known that will be drawn in our mind is that of a sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6. And what does that sword do? It pierces, it cuts, it divides. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Scripture says it is a sword. Further, Jeremiah tells us that Scripture is a fire that consumes and a hammer that crushes. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Why is it fire? Because it tests and consumes, Paul tells the Corinthians. The work of each one will become plainly, openly known, shown for what it is. For the day of Christ will disclose and declare it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test and critically appraise the character and work of each person. Whatever cannot stand up to the testing of the word of God will be consumed. Scripture is fire. Jeremiah says, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. A rock is hard. A rock is stubborn. But nothing can defy the hammer of the word on its own. What is the only rock, the only vessel that can withstand the hammer of the word? It is that which has been purified by the same fire. That has been tested by that fire, refined through that special fire of the word. Only it can withstand the hammer of the word. Of the word when tested. And it is with that that remains, that vessel, that rock that remains, that's refined by the fire, that's tested by the hammer, it will remain. 
All others will be burned up like chaff. They will be crushed by the hammer. So glory to God, the word is a sword. It is a fire. It is a hammer. What else? Scripture describes itself as a light and a lamp. The psalmist declares, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It illuminates our way. It gives sight where there was blindness. It shows us the dangers in the road, the ditches to avoid, the snares that would grab us and pull us down. And scripture goes on. Peter, in his first epistle, declares that the word is a seed that reproduces. It's milk that nourishes. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Finally, James tells us that the word is a mirror that reveals. If we will look into it, it will show us exactly as we are. Just as our mirror did this morning when we woke up, our mirror was a reflection of truth, wasn't it? No filters, no Instagram. The mirror says, there you are. And so it is. In our hands this morning, we possess a sword that cuts, a fire that refines and burns, a hammer that crushes, a light and a lamp that shines, a seed that reproduces, milk that nourishes, and a mirror that reflects the truth. So do we dare pick it up this morning? If you do, I can promise you that some are going to be cut. Some are going to be burned and refined. Some will even be crushed. Yet others will be illuminated with light, being nourished by its milk, if we will look honestly in the mirror. That is our fate if we take up our Bibles this morning. So let us do it. Amen? Oh, it's quiet. Amen. Okay. <laughs> well, last week we continued our journey through Thursday of Passion Week, didn't we? With a message titled, Beauty and Betrayal. And we have beheld over the past few weeks the divine providence and the foreknowledge and the planning that has occurred to even get us to the upper room that we now find ourselves in, the preparation and obedience that was required of so many. Last week's installment was, well, really something of a roller coaster of emotions, a contrast of scenes as we were forced to look into and we came face to face with the betrayal of Judas. One of the darkest, most consequential betrayals in history. And not because betrayal is anything unique to a fallen man. Because of the one, but because of the one against whom the act of betrayal was committed. In other words, Judas' betrayal was big because God is big. As we said last week, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. That's why even the smallest sin requires a savior. As we have begun wading into this incredible scene in the upper room as Jesus prepared to take his last Passover with his disciples, well, we were really struck between the eyes that such beauty and such betrayal could coexist in such proximity to one another. As we looked to our text last week, the, well, the betrayal was easy to see. It's floating right there on the surface. Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. This is the unthinkable unimaginable claim to disciples, isn't it? Prompting, as we taught last week, waves of introspection by 11 of the disciples. In an instant flood, they're reminded of every wayward thought, every sin of the hand and the heart, every time they doubted Christ quietly in their innermost being, every time they missed the mark and fell short, and they all asked the question, is it me? Is it me? Am I capable of that? 
We beheld great beauty and great mercy in Jesus' answer, did we not? Because the unvarnished answer when each disciple asked, is it I? Jesus could have answered to each one of them, yes, it is all of you. By the time this night is over, every single one of you will abandon me. You will all run away. He could look at Peter and see his denial as if it were happening at that moment. He could look at John laying on his chest and see him fleeing out of the garden. He could look around to each one of them in the upper room and see them run to save themselves. And they ask, is it I? Jesus' love for his disciples covers their multitude of sin that will come. So there's great beauty in his answer. He did not expose them all, even though they all would betray him. Yet even in these moments of treachery in the upper room, we beheld the heart of our Savior. Did he not wash the feet of his disciples, performing a task even a Jewish slave could not be compelled to do? Did he not wash Judas's feet? Grace and mercy flowing. Opportunities given to relent and repent. To be pierced through to the heart if there yet be a conscience that has not been seared by inner sin. We saw beauty from the Savior last week as well. When he offered the morsel to Judas in front of all. Understanding that this was an honor at the Passover meal. To be offered a morsel by the host in view of all. Yet again, Jesus is offering mercy and the hand of forgiveness. Beauty upon beauty. In telling the room as well that someone will betray me. Judas knew it was him. Which is yet another pricking of the conscience. And yet another opportunity to relent and repent. Oh, we serve a long-suffering God who is compassionate, who loved his enemy and loved his betrayer to the end. So yes, the betrayal was ugly and dark. Ugly and dark as the night that Judas slipped off into, betraying the master for the price of a slave. 30 pieces. But the beauty in that upper room, oh, it was greater than it all. The darkness of Judas' betrayal, the blackness of treachery is about to flee as we witness the dawning of something truly momentous, a fulcrum event, a defining moment so critical that we are commanded to remember it. And we take joy in celebrating it, even today. Today, as we continue our precious, intimate scene in the upper room, again, there is much that we do not see in Mark's account. Truly, one must read John's account. To swim through so much of Jesus' teaching and exhortation, his high priestly prayer for his disciples. And again, I encourage you, John 13 through 18, put that on your reading list for this Sunday afternoon. To give you that fuller picture of the heart of our Savior in the upper room. John 13 through 18. But what we are about to witness this morning is a transformation before our very eyes. We are about to witness a perfectly prepared Passover feast be changed in a moment into something entirely different. We will transcend from the last Passover to the first communion. From the celebration of a former exodus to a far greater exodus. And we have beautiful waters to swim in this morning. So beloved, with that, let us look to our text this morning, Mark 14, 22 through 26. Mark 14, 22 through 26. And while they were eating, he took some bread. 
And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by such a text this morning. Lord, it is a text that is difficult for us to wrap our heads around, is certainly difficult to preach. Holy Spirit, we come as a dependent people to you this morning. Lord, we are unable in and of ourselves to do this, but you are able. You know every need that has walked in here this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that the arrow would find its mark with great precision. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, where does the New Testament begin? Where exactly does it begin? Where does the New Testament begin? It probably seems like a simple question, even a little bit odd, doesn't it? Now, how would you answer Most would probably make a very logical guess. How about chapter 1 of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, right? The beginning is the beginning. And in some limited respects, that's true. But what does the term New Testament mean? We say it often. You ever thought about what it actually means? It means new covenant. New Testament means new covenant. We have an old covenant and a new covenant. When does that begin? As we begin to think this through, where, for example, do we read about John the Baptist? In the Gospels. And yet, what was John the Baptist? He was the last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet, wasn't he? He was the last one sent by God to speak to the nation of Israel. He was on a special mission as well to prepare the way for Messiah, and he would bridge the gap between the old and the new. But nevertheless, John the Baptist was old covenant that we see present in the Gospels. So where then, beloved, does the New Testament, the new covenant, actually begin? The answer is right here. It is here in the upper room that the most incredible shift of God's interaction with man fundamentally changes. That a new covenant is inaugurated with a simple act by our Savior. Beloved, to grasp this is to grasp the whole of human history to this point. To wrap our minds around the enormity of the event requires an understanding of how God has dealt with his people before the upper room and after. And still, if we are inaugurating in a new covenant in our text here this morning, if the old is gone and the new has come, we must answer the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, beloved, a biblical covenant is a relationship. They are promises and structures by which God will interact with man and man and kind will interact with God. In the Old Covenant, which, don't forget, is the covenant that we've been in for effect our entire time in Mark up to this point, has been God's agreement with his special people, his chosen people of Israel. Through Moses, God established the Old Covenant with his people, and it required strict obedience to the Mosaic Law. It was a conditional covenant. 
that required the daily sacrifice of animals to cover the sins of his people. It was not a covenant that could save. The law only has the power to condemn and to show the desperation of the human condition apart from God. To radiate in blinding truth that no man is righteous before God and that no one can save himself. Paul tells us in Galatians that we were held in custody under the law. Under the old covenant, the high priest could enter the most holy place where God's presence dwelt even then, only once a year. The old covenant was an era of rituals and sacrifices, of ceremonies and rules. Sin had broken the relationship man had with God. Sin had put a chasm, a gulf between the creator and his creation. So there must be a stopgap measure. There must be a temporary solution, a holding pattern by which God can commune with his people until that perfect and spotless sacrifice in the fullness of time would be made. A way that God can point his people forward to live in expectation of the time when the Christ and the Messiah would come. That's truly the entire purpose. Everything about the old covenant was meant to point to Christ. And now that Christ is here, he's here. And in Galilee, a light has shone among the Gentiles. And it must be so. A new covenant must be inaugurated. Because, beloved, God was never satisfied in full by the sacrifice of any animal. No man was ever saved by the sacrifice of any animal. You're going to slay those bulls and those rams and those lambs, not because it satisfies the righteous demands of the law, because it didn't. That's why the sacrificing never stopped. It was continual. But because God had not been satisfied by the substitution of an animal's blood, for their sin. You do this, Israel of the old covenant, to remind you that your redemption is going to come, and it's going to come through substitution. You deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, but that Israelite would be required to select that spotless lamb for sacrifice, to identify with that creature, to take it in its hands, grab its wool, and then inflict death. Upon that animal. Why animals? You ever thought about that? Why animals? Well, two reasons, really. One, the writer of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Blood must be shed. Secondly, animals are innocent. Animals never sinned. So if you're going to spill blood for sin, and you must, you have two choices. Either an animal or a perfect, spotless, sinless human. In the old covenant, the death they deserved was inflicted upon another. Behold, substitution. Substitution to Christ. To Christ they look. This is my body given for you. It's all substitution. Someone stood in our place, took our punishment, bore the wrath of the Father on our behalf. That's the gospel. Much more to say on that as we wade further into our scene. Let us look to our first verse today, beloved. Verse 22. Verse 22. And while they were eating, he took some bread. Now pause there for a moment. We won't take too much time setting the scene because we've already done that extensively over the last message or two. But understand that at this point, Judas has left the room. 
This is just Jesus and the 11 remaining. Of course, it was the duty of the host to explain to all those that were gathered about the elements that they would take, the wine and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and the karaset, right? That ground paste, of course, the roasted lamb. And we can infer by Mark's words while they were eating that they were likely in that lamb phase of the meal. Of course, reading that he took some bread, we know what kind of bread this is, unleavened. We taught previously on this quite extensively, didn't we? Even on the month-long Jewish ceremony of purging the home of any leaven, which of course not only reminded them of the hurried exodus from Egypt with no time for the, the dough to even rise, but of the corrupting influence of leaven that works into the entire lump of dough. Of course, the symbolism of leaven being sin and idolatry, of purging that out from among yourselves, that was the meaning. But with Jesus... Now, picking up this flat piece of bread, he is about to hold it in his hands, and the symbolic meaning is about to change forever. Back to our text, what happens? And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Now, we have two points of theology here that we must touch on to be faithful to the text. These words of Jesus have suffered much perversion at the hands of religion, particularly that of Rome and that of the Catholic Church. Of course, it's well known that they take the words of Christ here to mean that when we take the bread and the wine at communion, that the elements literally turn into the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. The fancy word for that is transubstantiation. That's a whole message unto itself. But let us understand with clarity. Jesus was not speaking literally when he said, this is my body. Or my blood. This was figurative language, just like when he referred to himself as a vine in John's recording in the upper room. Jesus is not a plant. Just as Jesus referred to himself as a door, he is not a door. He does not have handles or hinges. It is figurative language, and Jesus used it all the time. And ironically, it was this very figurative use of language that caused the religious leaders to accuse him concerning the temple. He said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Of course, he spoke of his resurrection, but they didn't recognize his figurative speech. They said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you can do it in three days. But Jesus declared in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, some have tried to go Catholic light as well. Instead of transubstantiation, they go with consubstantiation. Say, well, okay, it's not the actual body and blood, but it's the spiritual body and blood of Jesus. Again, beloved, no. The principle remains. Jesus was using physical concepts, eating and drinking, to teach a spiritual truth. He did it all through his ministry. But of course, the most pressing reason for rejecting this meaning, this turning the Lord's Supper into the actual body and blood of Jesus, the greatest tragedy is that it is presented as a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins or a re-offering of his sacrifice. This is directly in contradiction to what Scripture says. Peter declares in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
And the writer of Hebrews affirms this, proclaiming, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 7.27 also declares, Unlike the other high priests, Jesus did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. And when he, off, when he offered himself, meaning it is done. We do not re-sacrifice Jesus anew every Lord's Day. It is finished. It is done. It is finished. One should look at any statue of Jesus still hanging on a cross with great wonderment. Why would anyone put him there? He is risen. He is the glorious king. He is ruling and reigning on high. That's our king. And second brief point on Jesus' action here is the word breaking. He broke it. Now, through tradition, we've come to know this wording as describing the method of Jesus' death or the manner of his death, that his body was broken. Now, this comes from a few places. One, of course, is from vestiges of Rome. But secondly, from a reading of 1 Corinthians 11.24 in the King James translation. Now, I love the KJV. It's a very helpful translation in many ways. But here they missed it as translators are prone to do. Now, thankfully, all the other translations caught it. The King James reads in 1 Corinthians 11.24, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, you'll notice in all the other translations, ESV, NIV, LSB, etc., have corrected this reading. And it reads, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Did you catch the difference there? It's small, but it's monumental. The, broken, the bread was broken. Yes, he broke that bread. But, specific, but what specifically did not break? According to scripture, what was prophesied not to break at all? Jesus' body. Not a bone would be broken. Jesus' body was not broken. That was prophesied and fulfilled. Psalm 34, verse 20, not a bone. In fact, Exodus 12 shows us the exact same requirements for the Passover lamb. It cannot be broken at all. The difference in translation here is fundamental in how we understand this. His body was given for us, but it was not broken. Now, of this common misunderstanding in Scripture, Dr. John MacArthur, he writes, quote, The breaking of the bread did not signify the nature of his death, since none of his bones were broken during his execution. Rather, the fact that the disciples were each given a piece of the same loaf symbolizes their unity in Christ, close quote. My apologies if we're slaying some sacred cows this morning. I can hear them mooing out there. We must be faithful to the text. So Christ took the loaf and he broke off pieces and gave it to his disciples. So this bread is called matzah, still called matzah. It means bread of affliction. And we've explained how it was to remind them of their affliction in Egypt that they suffered, of their hurried exodus. But all that has changed. There's now a greater exodus and a greater Passover. Not only the bread, but now the wine. Look back with me now, beloved, to our text. Verses 23 and 24. I'll read them as one. Verse 23 
and 24. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Beloved, there are many points in Scripture, in God's holy word, where we gloss over the immense. Where we approach with familiarity the truly incredible. The linchpins of Scripture that we are to behold with great reverence. Understand that we have stepped into that place here in our text. To be sure, if we gave just these verses the treatment that they deserve, the glory of the new covenant being established, we could swim in these depths and never leave. This cup he took, it would have been the third of the four cups taken during the Passover. Of course, the first two cups were taken before the meal. That was the cup of sanctification and the cup of instruction. The second two were taken after the meal. But it was on the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus establishes the new covenant. Well, that pretty much preaches itself, doesn't it? From Genesis... When God presumably slayed the animals to cover Adam and Eve with animal skin, skin, blood was shed for that sin. From the Noahic covenant to the Abrahamic to the Mosaic covenants, there must be the shedding of blood. Even that very day, in the upper room, they lined up by the thousands at the temple. And they would enter in, and the priests would be holding the basins of silver and gold. And the Israelites would grab the wool and slaughter its lamb. And the priest would catch its blood in the basin. And as soon as it was full from lamb after lamb, the priest that was closest to the altar would take it and throw it upon the base. Thousands upon thousands, waves upon waves of the blood of lambs just to cover the sins. But even then... The sin remained because everything up to this point, every bull, every ram, every lamb slain merely pointed to the only sacrifice that God would ever accept. But the Passover lamb is here now. Instead of our sins being merely covered and needing to be covered again and again by more blood and more blood. Now that sin will be cast as far as the east is from the west. It will be cast into the sea of forgetfulness as a new covenant is upon us. Jeremiah looked to this day of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Your heart should have leapt within you, saint of God. As a Gentile, having been grafted in, if you are in Christ, this speaks of you. The old covenant blood was that of animals by the tens of thousands. It was one ritual ceremony and dietary law, a Mosaic covenant that only had the power to damn and to kill. 
But a greater exodus has arrived. A greater Passover. Christ, our Passover. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Understand, beloved, that at this very moment, in this upper room, as Jesus inaugurates in a new covenant, that the very temple in Jerusalem, the very epicenter of life and of faith and of pilgrimage for the Jews, that the disciples were just gazing upon as the sun shone against its golden walls, was at this very moment done. It's nothing more than a building. So every stone can be thrown down upon another. The entire reason and purpose for the temple's existence is gone. We don't need a place to demonstrate our need for a substitute. Our substitute has arrived. What happened when Christ gave up the ghost upon the cross? The veil in that temple was torn in two. It's a new covenant. Christ was born under the law. He was our law-keeping substitute. Perfect in life. Perfect in death. And now a perfect sacrifice has been made. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Saints, if we don't grasp what has happened in this moment, as the Passover table is transformed into the Lord's Supper, as the last Passover becomes the first communion, We miss the heart. We miss the heart. What truths are that that we are to meditate upon when we partake? We are to partake in remembrance of him. Yes, do this in remembrance of me. Who is he? He is the author of the new covenant. He is the Passover. He is the creator of a greater exodus. Yes, when we partake, we proclaim his death until he comes, Paul tells the Corinthians. Yes, that means it is the new covenant ushered in this moment and all that it entails. That is to fill our minds and our hearts and our affections as we approach the table and the glory of it. But we reflect upon what is no more and what is now. What do we glory in and reflect upon when we approach the table? What exactly? That the old covenant, which leads to death, that enslaved, that left men imperfect, that exposed their sin, has given way to a new covenant that gives life, that makes men free, that leaves men perfect in God's sight, that not only covers their sin, but abolishes their sin. Where the old covenant brought a curse, where it remembered your sin, where it could not give life, but was a ministry of death. The new covenant has redeemed us from the curse. It forgets our sin and is a ministry of life. The old covenant was a shadow with figures cast upon the wall by a flickering candlelight. It was a covered glory, while the new is a glory uncovered. While the old covenant had many earthly high priests who were themselves sinners. We now have one high priest, a heavenly high priest who knew no sin. We no longer have an old earthly tabernacle made by men. 
We now have a tabernacle not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. The law is no longer written on stone tablets. Now it's written on your heart. It's no longer a covenant of the letter, but one of spirit. Moses and the prophets are no longer our mediator. There is now one mediator between God and man. Our Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we no longer labor under an old covenant of works, but we live under obedience and faith. And we now have a greater exodus. Our sacrifice is unstained by the leaven of sin. He's unbroken in his body as the perfect lamb, just as the law demanded. Christ is our substitute in his perfect life. Our substitute in his perfect death. Just as the Israelites, under the old covenant, they both looked back to their exodus in their Passover celebration, and they looked forward to their coming Messiah. The disciples under the new covenant, under a greater exodus, they'll do the same. They'll do the same. They will look back. They will take the bread and the wine in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the cross and all that he has done. But as we will see here, we are looking forward as well. Verse 25, look with me to verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What hope flows from Emmanuel? Here the fruit of the vine, of course, means wine. And you'll recall that we spoke of the four cups of wine that would be taken during the Passover meal, two before and two after. We demonstrated how it was on the third cup, known as the cup of redemption, that Jesus instituted the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. But there's one more to go, isn't there? There's one more to go. It's the final cup, known as the cup of consummation, the cup of praise. The cup that is raised in rejoicing at residing in the promised land of God. And it's here, Jesus says, no. I'll not take that fourth cup. I will not drink of that wine because there's a greater land coming. There's a final consummation that's greater than you can imagine. There is a greater exodus, a greater Passover coming, that the cross is not the end. Not only is this a blessed assurance that Christ will return in our ears and in the eyes of the disciples, that the kingdom of God will be consummated, but when it is, you and I are going to sit at the table with him. You want to know what that looks and sounds like? When we join Christ to eat and drink anew in the kingdom, we happen to have a sneak peek of the messianic banquet, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride herself is ready. And we will sit with him. And we will eat and drink with him 
and with one another, just as they did in that upper room, but not as they once did. For the true consummation of the fourth cup will come. A greater exodus of his people has come. For every one of us in here today, who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation, who's come in repentance and faith, you have been passed over. You've been passed over. The angel of death, the punishment of sin, because of God's great love with which he loved us, has passed you over. You have been set free from Egypt in a greater exodus than Israel ever saw. He came to set the captives free. And one day that will be consummated in the millennial kingdom. The 1,000 year reign of Christ. We will sit with him and we will celebrate once again. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do not merely look back and remember all that occurred in his death. Yes, we are to look back, but hear Jesus' words. We are to look forward when we take the Lord's Supper. It is a time of reflection, yes, and also a time of expectancy and of anticipation for the coming Christ, for the marriage supper of the land. Jesus says what? Do this until I come. We're looking forward. Most of us spend all of our time at the Lord's table looking back. Yes, but we are to look forward as well. Our scene finishes in such a beautiful way. Only the Spirit of God could write such things. Final verse, verse 26. Verse 26. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Would you like to know what they sang that night? As Gethsemane was imminent. When the weight of sin will be brought to bear upon Christ's shoulders. Guess what? We do know what they sang. They sang the halal. As did all who celebrated. Now in whole, the, the, in whole that's comprised of all the way from Psalm 113 to 118. But here, being the end of the evening, they would have sang the final psalm. Would you like to hear the final words our Lord and the disciples sang before arising to go to the garden? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so it is, beloved of God. A new covenant has come. When we partake, 
We look back in remembrance. We look forward in expectation. Praise the Lord for a greater Passover, a greater exodus. As we will sing, oh, praise the lamb who takes away my sin. He tore the veil. Now I can enter in for all my days. My soul will praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are joyful and weighty words upon our spirit. Lord, these are truths that were it not for your Holy Spirit, we could never comprehend. We could never wrap our minds or our hearts around it. Lord, the new covenant that we reside in and we live in is a glory too much for words. We thank you that you've led us out of bondage. You've led us out of sin, out of Egypt, that there is a greater exodus. And we thank you, Lord, that we have been passed over. Lord, where we deserve to die, we've been passed over. Heavenly Father, we ask, as these truths settle into our heart, that they would take root, that they would take hold and bring forth fruit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As we begin to prepare our hearts on this very special Lord's Day to not only have celebrated the ordinance of baptism, but to now take the Lord's Supper, even as we have been in the upper room this morning, we are called to examine ourselves before partaking. We're called to take it with clean hands and a pure heart before God. That if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is that posture in which we come, looking back and looking forward. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you are a guest with us this morning, we warmly welcome you to join us at the table on just a few conditions. First being that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are born again. And secondly, that you are a member in good standing of a like-minded church who believes the same essentials of Scripture as we do, that you are accountable to that body, that you love the Lord. If so, we warmly welcome you to join us at the table as well. So as we begin to prepare our hearts, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we now approach your table, Lord, as we have so studied and so been immersed in this morning, we know that we have hearts that need to be prepared. We do not take this means of grace lightly. This new covenant that is upon us, we do not take it lightly. Lord, if there be any sin in our lives, if there's any way in us that's unpleasing, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, for the times where we've sinned, were the times where we knew what was right to do and did not. Lord, we ask with the psalmist that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. Amen. As you continue to reflect starting at the front, you may collect your elements, return to your seats. How precious is this to us this morning? Amen. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Praise the Lord for the new covenant. 
And in like manner, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is a truly remarkable and special day for your people. Lord, to not only have celebrated your ordinance of baptism, but Lord, to take of the supper. Lord, this precious table that is indeed dear to our hearts. Lord, it is a grace in our life. Lord, we know that it reorients our minds and our hearts, reminding us of the high price that was paid. Looking backwards, Lord, but also looking forward to a day where you will consummate your kingdom. We are grateful for that. Lord, our prayer with the psalmist is that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.